Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. By the 8th century BCE, the city-states of Greece had arisen to their classical age and began shaping the direction of Western civilization. As a scattered collection of individual powers, shared cultural attributes force historians to consider the inhabitants of the Greek mainland to be one society, governed by the same worldview. While having a great deal in common, the classical Greeks often battled one another and divided their loyalties between the two superpowers of the age, the Athenians of Attica and the Spartans of the Peloponnesus. On this episode, we discuss the emergence of classical Greece and the rivalry between Athens and Sparta. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 2 of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacy they leave behind that helped shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. In our previous episode, we discussed the earliest origins of the Greek world and the people considered by many to be the very first Greeks, the Mycenaeans. On this episode, however, we're going to begin to move into a time period that's much more familiar to us in popular culture, an age we think of as classical Greece. Now, the last time we left the Greeks, we were discussing the beginning of something historians called for a very long time, the Greek Dark Ages. And as often is the case, a term like Dark Ages is one that usually reveals more about us as the historian than the people who lived during the time itself. We always called it the Dark Ages, because when we look at the history of Greece looking backwards, as historians and archaeologists, one of the realities we have to deal with is the fact that we have a finished product that we think of. Of course, the product's always evolving. And we have to deduce and work backwards. We have to do that. And as we do it, we see these two major points of culture. We see classical Greece as we know it, what we'll talk about today. And we see the Mycenaean world before it. But we have this distinct gap in the center, what we call the Dark Ages, that seems to be a period of stagnation, a period of, of slow or no movement. We no longer see the wonderful works of literature and the wonderful works of art that seem to be uh, the defining feature of these two spikes of culture on either side. So it's a dark age for us, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a dark age for them. And before we can really understand where classical Greece comes from, we have to have a better sense of what these dark ages are like. On the archaeological record, we say evidence is scarce, but it's growing every day. We're learning more and more about these people, who they are, and how they see themselves. 
Now, when we view the uh, sort of polarized world of the Mycenaeans, this huge gap in Greek history and the rise of classical Greece, we can fool ourselves into believing that that gap uh, was a low point in Greek culture. And when you consider a lot of the uh, great advancements and achievements of the Greeks, that might seem to be the case. But we can also say that every day, uh, every year, we find more and more about who these people were and how the Greek Dark Ages to us were actually a very formative period. A lot of the features and distinctions that will really come to define the classical Greeks really are uh, first appearing and manifesting themselves and taking hold during the age known as the Dark Ages. This happens for a lot of reasons. Um, but some of the most prominent reasons we can talk about are steady streams of immigration. Immigration brings new cultural influences that really allows the Greeks to begin to coalesce as a culture and define themselves as a culture. But it also comes from the fact that you're seeing more and more and more uh, substantial farming develop on mainland Greece. Now, those two things seem wholly unrelated to the rise of a civilization, but it's important we understand the role they play particularly with agriculture. As farming develops, uh, you begin to see people with surpluses of food. This is sort of anthropology 101. But as the stores of food occur, you have people naturally with more wealth, you have a stratified hierarchy appear, and you have what we would think of as, for the first time, an elite class. Or maybe not the first time is the best, best term, but really for the first defining time in terms of the civilization, a defining class. All of that leads to the emergence of what we think of as classical Greece. And it comes in about the 8th century BCE, about the year 700 BCE. But the forces that create that are immense. And the Greek world that emerges out of it is one that is highly impressive. Now, before the end of this episode, we're going to focus a lot of our discussion on the two poles, we say, of the Greek world. One is the city-state of Athens and the other is the city-state of Sparta. Two very popular ones. Uh, of course, there are dozens and dozens of city-states, but we focus on those two because they are so different. But what I want to do in the first part of this episode is really get to what it means to be Greek. We use that term a lot, as we'll see in the future. It'll be used for centuries more, the term Greek. But what does that mean? Where does that come from? Uh, a good example is why, in the age of the Romans... 800 years later, do we see the first New Testament of the Christian Bible not written in Latin, not written in Aramaic, but written in Koine Greek? Well, there's a lasting legacy here that we have to explore, and we'll do it in this episode today. One of the things about being Greek, when we look at them, is that if you were in Greece in, say, the 7th century BCE, say you plop yourself right down in the middle of mainland Greece, you would see a wily collection, a wide group, a diverse group of various city-states, all who speak the same language, uh, all who, for the most part, worship the same gods, all who view the world the same way, but none of which views themselves uh, politically as similar uh, or as one. This would be your first introduction to the Greek mainland. Now, this is the benefit of hindsight. This is the benefit of the historian. This is the benefit of the person who's on the outside looking in. But we can see very clearly when it comes to the Greeks, with sort of what we could think of as a satellite view of the entire landmass, that here are a group of city-states, several dozen, 
uh, who are one common culture, one common civilization. But as you get closer and closer, as you zoom in more and more, Google Earth style, on this Greek society, you begin to see the very big differences and therefore the earliest flaws in the Greek world. Yes, they speak a similar language. Yes, they have a similar culture. But the similarities stop there. Because in terms of practical politics, these people are very divided. I really love studying Greece in the beginning of the classical age. The very beginning of this classical Greece we can sometimes call archaic Greece. And right about the 8th century BCE, the year 700, that's what we often see begin. But you have these people, and when you read their literature and you read what they leave behind, they really do see themselves as political competitors and sometimes political allies. But each of these city-states is its own unique place. Now, we've talked about the notion of the city-state earlier here in Season 2 of Wartime, this idea that you have a city and its surrounding farmland sort of as its own separate national identity. Uh, we could almost say, and they don't, but in our world, they'd have their own flag in a way. They may only be miles apart, but these people view themselves as very different peoples. The Athenians and the Therans, or the Spartans and the Boeotians, all view themselves, although they're all Greek, as very different people. Sometimes allied, sometimes separate. Not indifferent then today, if you look at the North American world, the Canadians and the Americans, very different, although their cultures do share some similarities. So before we just sort of ramble on with a laundry list of Greek city-states, I do not want to do that. I don't think it's an effective way of studying these people for a format like wartime. I'd like to talk about what the Greeks have in common. Because I think that's far more interesting for us as historians and archaeologists uh, than just rambling through the politics of the day. What we like to say is, the Greeks have a unique way of viewing themselves. First, what is a Greek? Well, uh, typically a Greek person would need one specific feature of life, more than ethnicity, that's a big part of it, uh, but it would be language. If you speak the Greek language, then you are considered to be Greek. It's the simplest and easiest way to introduce a worldview for us that can be very foreign. All non-Greek speakers are given the Greek word or the Greek name barbari, uh, which would be the origin of our understanding of the word barbarian. So that's right. A barbarian doesn't necessarily mean you are um, a rough individual. Barbarian doesn't mean you are not a civilized individual. To be a barbary, to be a barbarian, means you don't speak Greek. And obviously it's a big world. And it's a big world the Greeks are a part of. So that designation of Barbary generally was applied to everyone all around them. Uh, the Greek world will begin to grow. The Greek world will begin to fill up with people. And each of these city-states begins to really define itself in its own unique way. Some of these city-states are traditional monarchies, ruled by a king and a royal family. Some, as we'll talk about shortly, the Spartans actually have two kings, which we'll explain a little further uh, in a few minutes. Other city-states may be oligarchies, that is, ruled by a few powerful elite. Some city-states, as we'll see with Athens, will become known as a democracy, the first democracy, we say, uh, in world history. So yes, they're all Greek, and yes, they all speak the Greek language, and yes, they have these staggering similarities, but the city-states, otherwise, are very different. 
Think of that. You have dozens of city-states in one relatively small area, all with different versions and visions of government. Some very progressive, some very conservative, all in one place. And none of them can see the forest for the trees. They really have a difficult time understanding that they are all one unified people, despite their very clear differences. So what makes a Greek city-state? I love this part of studying their culture because, again, I tend to be someone who emphasizes more cultural differences uh, than, say, one battle after another in a more traditional military history. Well, every Greek city-state, uh, again, the center being the urban area itself, the city, is basically built and devised in the same way. And we call this system the polis system. If you've ever heard a term like metropolis, right, this is the origin. It's a Greek term, the polis system. So what is the polis system? Well, the polis system, obviously being the origin of the word political, politics, that sort of thing, is really the defining feature of Greek life. You are not a Greek city-state, and no one would say you were, if you do not participate in this polis system. So what is it? Well, it's very difficult to explain, so we'll take our time with it. But the polis system is a style of urban planning, the way a city looks, as well as a national sentiment, the way a group of people feel. Very confusing for us, but we'll use some modern examples to understand that. At the most physical level, uh, we'll say urban organization or urban planning, the polis system basically looks like this. At the center of your city, you'll have a large, elevated piece of ground uh, we would call an acropolis. Acropolis. Now, you've probably heard that term before as well. The most famous Acropolis, of course, is the Acropolis in Athens with the great Parthenon sitting above it. But the Acropolis is the center of your city and therefore the heart of your polis. Typically, in a Greek city-state in the 8th or 7th century BCE, on this Acropolis you would have a strong, pronounced religious temple. It's the highest point in the city. It's the closest to the gods. That's very easy for us to express and understand in a physical way. That was a lot of the success it had. But the Acropolis also, as high ground, served a very practical purpose, a secular or non-theological purpose. And that purpose uh, was defense. The idea was the people of a various city-state were all spread out around the city-state. Uh, the Acropolis, this elevated piece of ground, was in the middle. If they would ever come under attack, which was very common, interstate Greek warfare was a fact of life, all of the people would rush into the temple, onto the high ground, and it would suddenly become the equivalent of a fortification. So the Acropolis uh, is uh, sort of, like many things in the Greek world, uh, having dual purposes. It was a very physical display of your love of the gods, but also it served a practical defensive purpose as well. The Acropolis is at the heart. Every Greek city-state, if it was ever considered to be a Greek city-state, had that system in place. We really don't see that in the Mycenaean world. We really don't see it in the Minoan world. It's really one of these unique products of the Greek Dark Ages that really uh, blossoms, we can say, in classical Greece. Now, we know about the temple culture of the Minoans. We know the Mycenaeans adopt that. There is no question this is part of it. But the polis system is unique to the Greeks, but they all have it. The second part of the polis system, aside from the Acropolis, again, this is much more on the sense of uh, urban planning, 
is the large city that surrounds the Acropolis, a place of shops, a place of stores, a place of business. We call that the Agora. And the Agora is the average daily meeting place for the people of the city-state. You'll go there to shop, you'll go there to sell, you may go there to study. You'll certainly go there to talk politics and news of the day. And that's where most people would be on a regular basis. Again, the Acropolis tended to be a last resort uh, in the event of an attack. Of course, there were some religious connotations with it as well that would draw you there. But on your daily basis, you'd be in the Agora, uh, sort of enjoying yourself and enjoying your city. If you ever came under attack, you knew where to go to be safe. So the polis system is that basic method of organization. The Acropolis in the center, the Agora all around it. By the way, fear of large open spaces, we call agoraphobia for that reason. It's that Greek origin. But that is the way you design a polis. We call it the polis system. And I think if there's one essence of Greekness that we can see with our eyes, it has to be that. There's no question. But here's where things get to be very confusing for us. The polis system is not just a way of designing your city, not just a way of laying out physical space, but the polis system that so defines who the Greeks are is also an emotional sentiment. And this is where it really gets to be more complicated, but I promise you are already familiar with this system in the modern day. We are the latest evolution of it. Let's say you live in New York City. New York City is your physical space. You're there. But you feel like you're much more part of a community. You'd say, I am a New Yorker. Now, what does that mean? Well, would New York still be New York if there were no people in it? What if you were in uh, sort of this unusual science fiction world, the only person in New York City, post-apocalyptic uh, New York City? You're the only person. Uh, would you really still be in New York. Is New York more than the concrete and glass and stone that makes up the buildings? Or is New York all of the people and everything that goes along with it today making it the largest sort of modern center of world commerce? That's the idea. Well, we would say yes. An empty New York, an empty Chicago, an empty Los Angeles, an empty London, or an empty Paris does not give you the essence of Paris. Paris is more than just the place itself. It's the people involved, and it's how they live. That is, to the Greeks, the notion of the polis. The polis is not just how they build their city, but it's the communal spirit that comes from within. Uh, the term the Greeks would use to talk about that, specifically that sense of community, would be koinon. Koinon basically meaning the community being the people in the city combined. And that's what the polis is. The polis is much more than just the way it looks, but it's the feeling when the whole thing comes together. New York is not New York without the people of New York in it. And if you can understand what we mean by that, then you have a pretty good sense of what the polis system looks like. Again, every major city-state in Greece was built on that structure. Not because there was a memo going out saying, hey, build a polis, but it's the unique qualities and features of Greek life that allow it to happen. So before we can talk about anything else, we have to have a good sense of what the polis system really is, regardless of whether you are a monarchy, regardless of whether you are uh, a democracy or an oligarchy. Uh, the polis is everything to the Greek people. On that same topic, one of the things I always say, not only in my lectures and class, but also on this podcast, is that as an imperial historian, I truly believe 
Empire, yes, is great for spreading your, your map. Uh, Empire is great for spreading the love of king and country, but Empire, at its very essence, at its very most basic sense, is the spreading of your worldview, putting it, inserting it into places that never existed before. And the Greeks, by this point, certainly have a worldview. They certainly have a way of life that is unique to them. And like all great empires that will emerge, Greece is not one yet, but it is a civilization. It's going to spread. And the way it spreads is through what we would think of as colonization. Colonization. That's something we really haven't talked about yet on Season 2 of Wartime. But the colonization effort has a few hallmarks about it that are always very definite and very identifiable for us. The Greeks will expand in a very understandable and a very predictable way. They'll expand as far west as modern Spain. And they'll expand as far east, believe it or not, uh, to the far eastern coast of the Black Sea. They had a colony called Phasis there. And you're talking about something that, for all intents and purposes in our world, is a very eastern part of the world, a very Asian part of the world. And certainly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from what we think of today as Greece. But they're spreading throughout this world, and they're becoming a, a very formidable superpower. Again, though, they're so disunified. They're so disunited, they can't pull their resources to really become the superpower of the Mediterranean. They have to work out the business amongst themselves, which we'll talk about in a future episode of Wartime, before they can really realize that power. But now you have Greek colonies all over the Mediterranean. You have Greek colonies uh, in North Africa. You have Greek colonies in what we'll come to know as Italy, very Roman territory in the future. It's Italy. Uh, most of the Greek colonies, not all, but most, are focused on what is today called the island of Sicily. The Greeks would have called that Magna Gratia, or Great Greece, or Greater Greece. Um, so when you hear a term like Magna Gratia, they're talking about Sicily, which will be important for us in the future. But all of this is getting to the heart of what it means to be Greek what it means to be a Greek person in a Greek world at the time. Because for all the differences they have, it's these similarities that in the future will allow them to become, uh, quite literally, the largest empire uh, on Earth at the time. We're going to stay with, though, before we get into the particulars of the various city-states, what features of Greek life really still set them apart. Yes, the polis system is the heart of it, but what else do they have in common? Well, interestingly enough, one of the common features that they have, and we'll talk about how this spreads, is the way that they fight. The way that they fight. The predominant fighting style in all of Greece in the 8th century, 7th century, 6th century, really all the way for the next 400 years, is what we call the hoplite phalanx the hoplite phalanx. It's an interesting place to find cultural similarity, but as historians and archaeologists, when we see it, we have to put our faith in it. We have to dedicate much of our time to understanding it, because clearly it was a unifying feature of them. So, what is the hoplite phalanx? Well, the hoplite phalanx, uh, just like the polis, is yes, a very physical uh, manifestation of power and success, very practical, but it's also part of a larger social process. So what do we mean by that? Well, the hoplite phalanx, at its most visible, tangible level, uh, something you can see and touch, right, something in front of you, is a military formation. 
It's the way soldiers line up to fight. But it also reveals a lot about Greek society, which we'll explore as a necessary part of this unifying factor of life. The hoplite phalanx basically looks like this. I like to call it the ancient world's version of the tank. What you have are a group of soldiers. Maybe, say, 20 soldiers across. Maybe, say, 20 soldiers deep. And they march in a tight uh, and, and well-structured geometric formation. Every soldier is equipped with uh, the same items, some weapons, some armor, but they all have it because the hoplite phalanx is completely based on having these things in place. On their left hand, they'll have a large wooden shield that typically covered the area from their knees uh, to, we can say, their chin or maybe even farther up to their eyeballs. A very big shield stops most offensive blows from landing on you. On your right hand, you'll have a long spear, sometimes six, seven, eight, nine feet long, maybe even longer than that, depending on the time period. On your own, uh, you're a well-equipped soldier. You have in your uh, on your person what we think of as a panoply. That's the word we'll use, a panoply. And it includes a chest plate, a helmet. Uh, it includes various pieces of armor on your body that everyone needs to have. Now, the way the hoplite phalanx works is this. Individually, you're a formidable opponent. But if you are lined up with, say, 100 or 200 of your comrades, all with a shield and a spear and the same armor you have, what you've basically formed is a uh, impenetrable wall of military might. You'll interlock your shields with the person to your left and your right. Therefore, anyone attacking you will have very little success really inflicting any major damage. When you walk, you march in formation, in lockstep at the same time. So you're basically, when you think of it, uh, a giant armored wall marching toward your opponents. They can't attack you from the front. They can attack you from the sides. That's the way it works. The hoplite phalanx, the first, what we can think of as tank of the ancient world. A tank, of course, made of people, but it's the same idea. You can penetrate your opponents very slowly but surely in this system. Now, the hoplite system really is at its best. The hoplite phalanx, that formation, when it's used against people who don't employ it. When it's used against people who do not use the phalanx, what do we mean? Well, let's say you're in a phalanx formation. You're marching. You have a very sound strategy. It's a very slow way of fighting, but it's almost guaranteed to win you victory every time. And the people you're attacking, which we'll see in the future, have no noticeable military formation. They have no armor. They just sort of rely on the old system of most fighting in the ancient world where they run at you and try to overwhelm you with numbers. Well, when you're in the hoplite formation, an opponent that attacks you in that way, sort of a chaotic way, stands almost no chance because the hoplite phalanx is designed to stop anyone from penetrating your defenses. You can wipe them out very easily. Well, we can see why this would spread in Greece. We don't know who the first people in Greece to do it really are, but we do know that once it starts, uh, like all escalation, it spreads very quickly throughout the Greek world. If you don't have the hoplite phalanx formation, you just won't win any battles. It's that simple. And remember, the Greeks in their various city-states fight each other a lot. So the hoplite phalanx works masterfully against opponents who don't use it. And that's why it'll be used for much of the next 500 years after its invention. But the issue you start to see in Greece is the fact that one phalanx versus a non-phalanx 
almost as a guaranteed win for the Hoplite Phalanx every time. But what happens when a Phalanx squares off with another? And pretty quickly, when a Greek squares off with another? Well, what you see are that battles tend to be very slow, very cumbersome, and terribly ineffective. They can last all day, because you just can't inflict enough damage when it's Phalanx versus Phalanx, Picture this as two tanks just sort of bumping into each other constantly um, and really end a battle that way. You can't do it. So what we have as a result are not many deaths in Phalanx formation, but you have a lot of very grievous injuries. Now imagine the way the front of a Phalanx looks. You have a soldier with a very large shield. It covers basically everything down to their knees uh, and everything basically up to their chin or maybe their nose in some cases. Well, you can't really inflict what we think of as a mortal wound. Even their head, they're wearing a helmet. So what do you see? Well, you see a lot of people maimed in pretty terrible and horrible ways uh, as a result of this. But if you read Greek heroic poetry, that is poetry meant to honor the warrior class, one of the things you'll see is these references, and it's very strange if you don't understand the phalanx, uh, to the great heroes of the Greek world uh, being castrated on the field of battle. They talk about uh, severed uh, private parts, for lack of a better word. This is a family podcast, laying on the battlefield. Well, why in the world would losing one's, uh, you, you know, uh, really be such a sign of being a glorious hero? Well, think about the phalanx. If you stab too high, you hit the helmet. If you stab in the middle of the body, you hit the shield. The only really option you have is to take a short sword or a spear and stab under the shield. Well, that's basically what we'd call a direct hit. Uh, to an area where you really can't afford one. So this sort of ties into the Greek idea of battle, of a warrior, of a veteran. Um, if you are castrated on the field of battle, it's because you've been through a lot of battles. You would rarely be killed in this regard. All Greeks share this in common. And it's because of the hoplite phalanx itself. Now, what is revealed about the hoplite phalanx, right? What is important about the hoplite phalanx? Well, not only is it a military formation, again, think like the polis. It's an urban plan, it's a way of designing a city, but it's much more than that on an emotional and spiritual level. This is true of the phalanx as well. Here's one of the great misconceptions about the hoplite phalanx. The hoplite phalanx is not for everyone. Remember, for the phalanx to work effectively, you have to be fully decked out in all of the materials required to participate. You have to have the helmet, you have to have the chest protector, you have to have the spear and the shield. Well, that's very expensive. And most people in Greece can't afford the entire panoply, as we say. That's the whole collection of things you need to participate. So as a result, if you want to engage in the hoplite phalanx itself, you really have to be one of the super rich. You have to be one of the elite upper class of Greece. You see a lot of royalty in the hoplite phalanx and various family members of royalty. But you don't see the average Joe participating simply because affording that uh, sophisticated metal armor and weaponry was expensive and most people couldn't do it. It's also for this reason that it's not uncommon to see uh, a grandson or a great-grandson wearing the armor and using the shield and the spear of his great-great-grandfather in Greece. It's expensive. It's sort of almost like an inheritance of one specific group of goods. If you're in the hoplite phalanx, you're a member of that upper-class elite group. You're not an average person. Again, there's no middle class, uh, but you're certainly not in any lower class if you're in the phalanx. 
Now, as time goes on, lower class participation in the military will be necessary as well. But more often than not, you're sort of uh, just charging your enemies like a group of maniacs, kind of softening them up and probably dying for the phalanx to come in and finish the job. So this is a theme we want to see not only in Greece, but really all over when we study these foreign cultures, that something that appears to be a very physical system, like the polis, like the hoplite phalanx, actually reveals a lot more about who these people are and how they see themselves at the time. Now, we've talked a great deal about what all Greeks have in common. The polis system, the hoplite phalanx system, the city-state system. Let's talk a little bit about what differences they have. And the best way to do that, and this has been done for centuries, is to talk about the two polar opposites of Greece, as different as you can be. These are the city-states of Sparta and the city-states of Athens. Let's start with the Spartans. The Spartans are not a democracy. We always say the Greeks come up with democracy, but not all Greeks really participate in democracy. The Spartans have what we call a dual monarchy. That is, at any given time, they always have two kings. One for more political matters, one for militaristic matters. Again, royalty often participated in the hoplite phalanx. The Spartans are a very insular culture. There's a lot of different people in Greece. Some of them really enjoy operating with one another in a peaceful way. They enjoy sharing their culture. It's how empires and civilizations develop. But the Spartans of a people have very little interest in anything that resembles cultural exchange. They really enjoy doing what they do, and they've got almost no interest in hearing your opinion of it or hearing your recommendations to change it. They are an insular culture, very inward-looking and very set in their ways, to say the least. The Spartans also are unique in that they are what we would describe as a warrior culture. A lot of different city-states define themselves uh, by one unique feature of their society. The Athenians, as we'll talk about, are the people of logic and a people of reason. This is your Socrates and your Plato, these great thinkers of the ancient world. Well, the Spartans place no value in that. No value in that. To the Spartans, you are only as effective in society as you are on the field of battle. They have a deep, sort of ingrained uh, uh, ideology in their cultural DNA that makes war supreme for them. The best version of a man is the best warrior. And if you're a woman in the Spartan world, your greatest hope is that you have a child who becomes a great soldier. Martial arts are throughout their culture. Uh, they love war. It's how they define themselves. It's who they are. And interestingly enough, as seemingly backwards or closed in as we can often say the Spartans are, they are, by all accounts, the very first people in Western history to offer something that would resemble uh, what we would call a public education. That is, an education uh, for everyone. Now, it's not exactly the public education we have today, uh, but it's something, and in the ancient world, every step counts. Their public education, as you could imagine, is based on the art of war. You know, the Spartans have what we call an origin myth that says uh, that their civilization, that their city-state, was founded by a man named Lycurgus. And Lycurgus, as you could guess, uh, was abandoned uh, in the countryside and raised by wolves. He was like this supreme fighter, this supreme warrior. And they try to model themselves after Lycurgus as a result. We don't know if he was a real person, but there are many references to him. It's an origin story in Spartan life. Well, the public education they offered 
It was not science. It was not math. It was combat. And the process in which they did it, we call the agoge system. So what is the agoge system? Well, the agoge system is this. When a child is born in Sparta, if they are a male, they are given a very, uh, very cursory glance. Uh, that is how they uh, are observed. Physically, how does the child look? If the child is uh, behind in development, if the child is disabled in any way, pretty brutal stuff. The Spartans would basically say, you can never be a functional part of the military, uh, so there's no reason for you to be raised as a Spartan. They'll take the child and they'll do what we call exposing them, which means they'll put them in the wild. If the child survives, then they can be a Spartan. Now, we know that the rate of success is extraordinarily low when this happens, but this is what we see. You know, there's a lot of popular mythology of pits of infant skeletons, you know, Babies being thrown into uh, this sort of abyss and just left to be on their own. Not exactly right, um, but that was a real feature of Spartan life. Not all the time, but it did happen. Now, a child will stay with their mother until about the age of seven, eight, nine years old, and the mother will teach her son how to be a good Spartan man, uh, how to put your nation, your city-state before anything else, these sort of things. And then she very willingly gives him up to continue his training in the Agoge. And from there, his relationship with his family is all but severed. In the Agoge, the child will learn to fight. He'll learn the art of war. He'll learn how a Spartan man should live. It's a very brutal trial by fire. If you have a very advanced, say, 10-year-old, and then maybe a 12-year-old who's not so good at the, at the fighting arts, well, you'll pit them against each other, and whoever survives is the winner. Someone will be killed. That's the idea. But the, what you really want in the Spartan world is for your young people to come out of the Gay system fully prepared for the hell that is war. And we've kind of taken this and ran with it and mythologized it, and we use these people as mascots, and we use them as expressions of masculinity. But there is no doubt the Spartans were a unique case, not only in the Greek world, but in the ancient world as well. They were people who lived for war. They were people who cared for nothing but conquest. They do not play well with others. They have a monarchy that is relentless. They'll never give it up. And it's really a defining feature of who they are, because discipline wins the day in the military. Uh, and logic and reasoning and debate, these sort of things only serve for an ineffective army. Now, you have a pretty good sense of who the Spartans are, and we will talk about them again in the future episodes of Wartime. Let's talk about the Athenians. The Athenians are the polar opposites, I like to say, of the Spartans. They are both the economic uh, powerhouses of their day. Other city-states around them tend to gravitate toward them, uh, but they are two very different Greek city-states. The Athenians have what we think of as a democracy, or at least what we think of as the world's first true democracy. Yes, they have a strong military. Yes, they have a, a sense of martial honor that is to fight. But they are much more interested uh, in uh, expressions of intellect, that is, philosophy, science, and art. But when we talk about democracy in the ancient world, a lot of people really disconnected on what this democracy looks like. They think of our modern form of Republican democracy, and they wonder, well, how advanced were they? Well, the word democracy itself is a Greek word. Uh, it comes from the, the combination of words uh, demos, which would be people, and kratia, democracy, power. So democracy literally means power to the people. 
And the, the democracy that the Greeks had in Athens was actually, I think, much more similar to ours than it was different. Now, we will say the democracy in Athens was a direct democracy, but it was a place where people could communicate and express their feelings on particular issues. The center of all democratic life in Athens uh, was what we would call the assembly. The assembly is a Greek institution open to all men over the age of 20, and they meet upwards of 40 times a year. They would discuss war and peace. They would discuss new laws. They would talk. They would discuss social change. We would think of it today as a legislative branch in a very real way, much like our modern legislative branch in the United States of America. Did the Athenians have what we would consider to be a judicial branch? Well, you bet. They had a series of judicial courts that were open to all citizens, and they did not discriminate against citizens based on age, class, or wealth. So much like the American system, there is a three-branch government in the democratic uh, Athenian world. Uh, there is a legislative branch, the Great Assembly. There is a judicial branch, the Great Judicial Courts. And there's also an executive branch. Again, this is shockingly similar to what we in the Western world consider to be the most modern expression of democracy on Earth. Their executive branch, however, is not uh, in the hands of one person. In the modern United States of America, the executive branch is in the hands of the President of the United States. But the President of the United States is only responsible for a series of decisions. Only he or she can make. Well, in the Greek world, in the Athenian world, the executive power was in the hands of not one man, but what we called the Council of 500, open to all males over 30, selected by a random lottery. Now, some positions were held by popular election, generals and treasurers, for example. But this group of people served the purposes of the executive branch in the Athenian world. So what we're trying to say when we consider the Spartans and the Athenians are that although they're both Greek in every sense of the word, although they speak the same language, although they use the same polis system, they have the same fighting style, certainly not the same emphasis on military might, but definitely the same fighting style, they are very different people. You can have a very conservative power like Sparta with all the power accumulated at the top, and you can have a democratic world in Athens only a short distance away uh, with power spread evenly throughout the people. Now, we don't want to say the Athenians had it exactly right. The fact of the matter is really only about 10% of all Athenians were considered to be systems. Of course, there are no women allowed to participate in this exchange in the ancient world. Slaves are left out of it. Anyone beneath the age of 20 is left out of it. Again, about 1 in 10 Athenians was actually considered a citizen. Um, so there really is no sense that this is the perfect system. But for the ancient world, it's absolutely unheard of. Now, how did the Spartans and the Athenians get along? Well, they certainly had their scrums in the past. Uh, but they really serve, again, as two alternate poles, we say, in Greece. Many city-states rallied around Athens because they simply had more in common with them. Many of the more conservative, insular uh, city-states rallied around Sparta. And this will be the way that most of Greek history in the Classical Age is expressed. We're going to emphasize a lot of the differences between the Spartans and the Athenians in future episodes of wartime, but never forget the similarities they have, because it's for this reason we consider them part of the same world, although they are very different parts. On the next episode, 
we talk about the unifying force in Greece, the one thing that makes them feel like, for the first time, they are actually one person, an invasion from the outside world, from, of all people, the world's largest empire, the Persians. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.